This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest serving in various stints in campus ministry, pastoral care to those facing addiction and homelessness, and recently as a writer and resident at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's the author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary and a new book, Prayer in the Night. Tish, welcome back to the conversation. Thank you for having me back. Well, we last had you on the podcast and April of 2018. Uh, a lot has changed in, in almost three years. Um, what have you been up to? For the last three years? Well, I'm more tired than I was when I talked to you <laughs> three years ago, both because like, you know, we're coming through 2020 and global pandemic and election, but I also have a one-year-old son. So um, I have a one-year, I have a baby that didn't exist in 2018. Um I, I have three kids, so I, I already had two girls, but now I have a son, um, and he doesn't sleep um, very consistently, so I um, am very tired because of that, but also, of course, lots of joy. He's great. What else has happened since 2018? I um, went from, I was associate rector of a church, and I ended up transitioning to writer in residence which was more was more part-time um so that I could have essentially I could write another book or I could be an associate rector but I could not do both at the same time I probably could do both at the same time if I didn't have a husband who's also in ministry and children but I wanted to keep all my children and my husband so I um 
transitioned, still working at, at Church of the Ascension, but was right in residence. And um, and now we're sort of, we um, are, my husband took a sabbatical or sort of stepping out of ministry for a season now and figuring out what's next. So we, we're definitely in a transition period. I'm, we're kind of we both recently turned 40. We're de- like reevaluating next steps and next ministry steps in our life. So we're kind of we're sort of in a midlife crisis right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great place to be in. And then on top of that, 2020. So there's. I know. Well, 2020 was apocalyptic in every sense, right? Like it, it's an un- it feels like this global catastrophe but there's it also you know apocalypse means un, unveiling so I feel like it for a lot of people I know it unveiled things in their life like desires ways their jobs were working ways their jobs weren't working um we have started homeschooling our kids this year which is something I never ever in a million years thought I would do ever um I'm really not a teacher like I don't especially like small children. That's not my gift. I love my kids, but um, yeah. So that's happened and we, but it's, we like it, especially my husband. He, he is a, he has a PhD and is a, has been a professor for a number of years. So he really has a gift of teaching Um, and he's loved it. And I really like it. I mean, it's been a joy to teach my second grader how to read more advanced like she's reading chapter books now and, and wasn't really confident in her reading before. So my point is, I think 2020 has brought on a lot of newness and vocational searching for a lot of folks. Cause it's been kind of, it, yeah, it's such a giant shift in routine has sort of revealed the things that people value, I think more. Well, what about from the ministerial side? I mean, of course, um, you know, Anglican tradition is um, a little bit different than, you know, say, you know, cooperative Baptist, but certainly the ministerial experience, (laughs) uh, you know, is is something unique that, um, you know, as I talk with uh, friends and colleagues across the country and, and really around the world about what it's been like to be a minister during a global pandemic and, um, you know, I think it is, you know, ministry by itself is already a, a very difficult thing. You know, Forbes actually rates uh, pastoring as um, top three or four every year of leadership roles in America. You know, so, so you know, <laughs> yet on top of that, a, a global pandemic. So what has the experience been like for you, you know, as a minister? Yeah. So I... I have found it pretty hard. I online church is just um, so sad, you know. It's um, and of course I I think that I think it it's the right thing to do. I think it's right to keep people safe, um, and and our, our church in Pittsburgh has done iterations of things. You know, there was first like the total shutdown, and we were just online, and then. It's opened up some, so um, they have limited numbers. We have a really large sanctuary, so they can limit numbers and have quite a bit of space between folks, and then they wear masks. Um, But it's still, it's weird. It's very weird to preach to a room of people wearing masks um, and with social distancing, because sermons are so... um, they're so mutual, right? Like you pick up on the energy. It's not like um, you're giving a, a lecture and it doesn't matter if you're preaching to an empty room, like a lot of it. And I'm saying even in Anglican context where you know we don't really have a lot of like amens and hallelujahs, like it's pretty staid, but still you're, you're, you're responding to people's energy and, and their faces and you can kind of tell who's tracking with you and who's not tracking with you and when everybody is masked up it's it's um it's crazy and I do feel like um I mean ministry is just like at the end of the day it's so human it's so it's so life on life it's so person to person and so 
um, things like social distancing and having to limit gatherings. And those are huge, huge challenges. And I just think this is something seminary didn't prepare us for, right? Like, I mean, I, that's no fault to seminary, but it's like no one, I never took a preaching during, preaching to a half empty mass congregation during a global pandemic class. Like that wasn't, that wasn't in the catalog. So um, I have really, I mean, I think that that's part of the, uh, every pastor I know, I think this is true maybe except for one friend, but every other pastor I know has said that this, this has just been really, really hard, that COVID has been really difficult on their ministry and time. And, um, and so I think it's hard. I think it should be hard. I mean, I think we are partaking in the fallenness of the world. If, if, you know, I mean, I told my, my sister and I were talking about this the other day with, with having our kids have to kind of struggle and suffer through COVID. And I just thought that, you know, we're really raising narcissists if our kids look back and say like, the global pandemic was super fun, right? Like, of course we want them to like, also be walking, like to, to see that they're suffering in the world and to, to, to know that and experience that and hopefully to meet Jesus in that and experience the love of their parents in that and that they can get through hard things. But I do think um, it's just, it feels wrong because it is wrong. Like we weren't made for a world where we, um, where we experience disease and death. And so, um, you know, Christianity has the story that makes sense, doesn't make sense of this, but, but that is a response to this, right? That we're living in this fall, we're living in the time between the times when we're waiting for Jesus to set things right. But man, that's a, we're always doing ministry in that space, but it's just very evident right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say something that's been really, so that's the negative, the positive that I've seen in lots of pastors and in my own family is um, COVID slowed us down a lot and we were going at mock speed. I mean, between um, my work and writing and ministry, my husband being in ministry and having a new baby and um kids in school things were just really we were just busy and um nights in particular were booked a lot with events and that sort of thing and COVID just kind of and I was traveling and COVID put the brakes on all of that and that's been very very good for us like it just has it's sort of putting everything on the table and then being real intentional about what we put pick back up again and um and I have a lot of pastor friends and other folks that travel for their job or um, that sort of thing who have seen the slowing down time as a time to really kind of take stock. Um, like, I really hope that because we walk through coronavirus, our family will always spend more time together. We will always have more dinners together. Um, because that's something we value, but I think that it was, we, we were getting too busy and we've really seen through this time that we need to, we want a slower life. So that's been a gift from COVID. Well, two things. One is, you know, I, I think for me, um, something you said kind of is bringing us to, uh, to the surface and that I think a lot of our parishioners can now uh, maybe um, uh, more fully uh, connect with uh, the aspect of suffering through scripture. You know, so much of what we see in the sacred text is about people who are struggling and wrestling. Uh, and that is not really a lived experience for a lot of um, especially predominantly white American Christians. Um, you know, and, and for us to experience it as a community too. 
you know, secondly, I guess that's what makes the difference between Anglican seminaries and cooperative Baptist seminaries. Like I had a class on pastoring through a global pandemic. Was that not part of the curriculum <laughs> school for you? Well, that was, that was really thinking ahead. On the- <laughs> yeah, they were just totally, it was actually, you know, it was led by somebody who lived in 1918. So, um, yeah. you know, I went to Gordon Conwell. I didn't go to an Anglican seminary. So mine was, mine oh, was yeah. broadly yeah, evangelical. Guess, yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's what it was. No. So you know, it's maybe a good, good point transition to kind of your book. Uh, as mentioned before, you have a new book coming out at the end of January, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch uh, or Weep. Uh, based around um, kind of this traditional uh, prayer of night, um, you invite readers into an honest and transparent prayer in the midst of vulnerability, suffering, and isolation. You wrote, night is not just hours on the clock. How many of us lie awake at night, unable to fall back asleep, worrying over the day ahead, thinking of all that could go wrong, counting our sorrows? Talk to us about the, uh, the conception of this book. Yeah, so um, this book began, so um, I was going on a writing retreat in sometime around 2018 to start working on a, on a different, on my second book, and I had kind of a different idea in mind, and, um, but I, I had been through this time in 2017, the year before, of, of just darkness, of suffering, we had moved across the country um, and I was very homesick for Texas. Uh, then we had my, um, a week after we got to our new home in Pittsburgh, my father back in Texas passed away suddenly. And then to make a very long story short, which is you could get the details in the book is uh, we ended up having two miscarriages that year. Um, And one of them, a second trimester miscarriage after a really hard, long, difficult struggle of a pregnancy. So um, at the end of that season, I was just tired. You know, it was, um, it, it was ordinary suffering in a sense, like it's a things that many of us go through. Um, most, many people have moved or lost a parent and, or had a miscarriage. Um, but it was, I, it was a season of, it was a difficult season. So, um, I was worn out and asking all kinds of theological questions that I had intellectual answers for, um, that I had, you know, thought through in seminary and that sort of thing, but that had kind of uh, started roaring again in a in a in my heart, like in a way that wasn't just intellectual. And so, um, I was gonna go work on this other book. Um, and essentially, every time I sat down to write it, <laughs> once I had this idea, um, this kind of it, this book wouldn't let me go. Um, and partially because I, I didn't want to write it because I didn't want to have to go back and deal with all the questions and go back to all the places of sorrow and write about this, but it just felt like this, it wasn't going away. Like it was this, it was sort of this apparition, this ghost that just kept showing up and um, sort of demanding that I deal with these questions. And so, um, and then the night piece was that um, during that season, during 2017, I, I would sort of get busy during the day, but at night when things slowed down, I would, I would struggle with fear, with anxiety. I think I've always, since I've been a little kid, been like a little bit afraid of the dark. Um, and I think I make the point in my book that I think everyone, if you go in deepest darkness for long enough, everyone's a little afraid of the dark. Like that's, it's a vulnerable place, right? To not have sight. Um, so, um, I, that night would amplify loneliness. It would amplify anxiety. It would amplify doubts about God and questions, and it would amplify sorrow and loss. And so, 
Um, so I would fill it up. I would distract myself. I'd get on Netflix or Twitter or read political articles or get busy with a project. So I'd fill up my nights and stay up way too late. And um, eventually, I just sort of compulsively filled up the night. And so I um, had to intentionally let myself feel the bad feelings I didn't want to feel, <laughs> um, which was slow for me slowing down at night. And um, so I came back to this practice that I'd had for a long time, for years, of um, praying Compline, which is the Anglican nighttime prayer office. So um, the book isn't exactly, it's, it's not about how to pray Compline or that you should pray Compline. That's not really the point of the book, but it takes, it is kind of about how do you keep praying when you don't know how to pray anymore? And how do you keep walking in the way of Jesus when things seem foggy or dim or dark? Um, so I um, took one particular prayer out of Compline, which is my favorite prayer of it, which um, could, I guess, can I, I'll just share the prayer. Um, but it, it says, keep watch dear Lord with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick Lord Christ, give rest for the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. So I take each phrase of that prayer, and um, that frames the chapters in my book. And so it's that prayer is a way to sort of meditate on um, where is God in the midst of human vulnerability? If God allows us to be vulnerable and doesn't keep bad things from happening to us, how do we trust God? Um, so going back to where this came from, I was I wanted to write a different book, but couldn't get over these questions. So I wrote that question that I think it's in the first or second chapter I wrote, you know, if we cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to us, how do we trust God at all? And then I like couldn't write. I mean, I stopped writing. I, it, I think I went almost a week without writing anything else because I just didn't I didn't know that I didn't know the answer. And, um, and I knew, of course, I could have written something. I knew the pat answer, but it all felt trite at the moment. And it felt like I couldn't trust it. And so, um, so then I had to basically write 70,000 words to, and then whittle it down to, you know, <laughs> 45,000 to be able to answer that question. And so the book really comes out of my own struggles with nighttime and with trusting God and with learning how to pray again when I when I felt like I couldn't pray. We need to pause from this fascinating conversation to tell you about one of our annual sponsors. BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, is hosting the annual Henson Lectures on Monday, March the 1st from 10.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The E. Glenn Henson Lecture Series started in 2009 and honors the life and work of Dr. E. Glenn Henson by inviting lecturers who share his passion for Christian scholarship in and for the life of the church and the world. This year's lectures will be held virtually and will be free allowing anyone interested in participating in this highly regarded series. This year's speaker is Dr. Doug Weaver, Director of Undergraduate Studies and Professor of Baptist Studies at Baylor University. Dr. Weaver's lectures are entitled Holy Spirit Power, Baptist and the Experience of Pentecostalism, and Baptist and the Charismatic Experience, From Cessationism to Carpet Time. Visit bsk.edu backslash Henson for more information or to register. You said something earlier that... Um... Uh, resonates with me on a personal basis, also a spiritual basis in the sense of uh, two daughters. And one of them is absolutely terrified of the dark and the other is just completely cool with it. <laughs> um, you know, and so even the simplest thing of like, hey, can you run to this part of the house and go get this thing? And she resists it because she knows it's in the dark, you know, and even the concept of cutting on lights is... Um, it doesn't help. It doesn't alleviate that stress and that fear. 
So, you know, the running theme throughout this book is, uh, you know, in a sense of, of walking into the darkness or embracing the, the darkness that we experience. So why do you think people are naturally resistant to this notion um, is darkness as part of part of our life journey? Um, you know, is, are people naturally resistant to it? And if, if so, why? Um, that's a good question. So uh, um, I feel, yeah, are, you're saying are people naturally resistant to the concept that darkness is part of our story or our life? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or part yeah. of our spiritual journey. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I think if you live in America and you have enough privilege and wealth and education and um, that you can convince yourself that life is supposed to be kind of nonstop awesome. And there's all kinds of advertising and consumerism um, and consumer culture in America that's gonna, that will convince you of that, that um, the, the center of the world is your needs being met. And if your needs aren't being met that, um, you know, you can buy your way out of that, that you can, you can find the product or the relationship or the um, experience that will um, perfect your life, right? And, and that if, if your life isn't perfect, that something's gone wrong, you know, that, that either someone's to blame or you need to shop better or find, you know, you need to follow your bliss more and you need to, um, figure out your own path. So there, I think there's, what I'm saying is there's broader, even outside the church, I think there's broader cultural influences that um, particularly for those who are born healthy and born with privilege and power that um, there's expectations that our life is supposed to go a certain way. But I also think like, um, I say this in the book kind of later on, but that all of us, um, in the American church have, have imbibed to some extent, like a prosperity gospel, I think. Um, even folks like me who would say, I deeply, deeply find the prosperity gospel troubling. I think that um, we, that the way we talk about faith is often something like that we're, that we're selling, right? We're trying, it's part of this consumerism thing. We want, we want Jesus to be the product that makes our life better, right? And that, um, and I think really subtly, we can be taught from an early age that if we keep our end of the bargain, if we're moral people, or if we follow the rules that our church gives us, that our life will turn out in a certain way. And then if it doesn't, we feel like God didn't keep his side of the bargain. And so I think that we are taught, um, we're taught that kind of, well, that if we do our part, God will make our life go well, like, super subtly. But I mean, you get this in things like, um, I remember before I was married, the idea of like, if you just follow Jesus faithfully and let go of your desire for a husband, you know, then one will come to you. The idea is like, if you are faithful enough, God will give you what you want. Well, um, that's not true. I mean, that's just, that's a lie. So, <laughs> but I think that it's something in, in really subtle ways we can, um, that can be taught and, um, or we just, we can sort of assume that I think. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I also think um, life is scary right? And we don't like that. And so we want to shrink back from that. We want to shrink back from the vulnerability that we all have. And we want to believe that faith can come and kind of wrap us up like a blanket and keep us totally safe in the world, which is never the promise God gives us. But I think it's a natural response to that we do long for safety. We do long for protection. And of course, God God protects us and does keep bad things from happening to us all the time. Every day, the sun rises um, out of God's mercy. But um, 
Jesus never promises that our life will go well or that we will be perfectly safe. And um, so I think, but I think I understand, like it's an understandable desire. So I also think um, sometimes Christians out of that desire can just give really pat answers or really trite answers. I think very, very few Christians outside of the prosperity gospel world would say, you know, if you do your part, nothing bad will happen to you. I'm not sure we'd admit that, but I do think we tend to want to just make things, want Christianity to be a little, um, we want to take the edges off, right? We want to, we want to make it just a little shinier, a little more easy, a little more, um, a little more um, easily digestible. But I think in doing that, we can, we can make, we can give trite answers to suffering. So part of my goal of the book was to really let the darkness be dark, really not try to make excuses for God, really, really let suffering be honestly dark and um, be very real about that darkness is true. It's real. Um, that's, a, that's a very real thing about the world. And then be equally honest and true about the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God. But I think if we go there too quickly, we, we miss, um, we can just make things trite. You know, I, I see this all the time during Holy Week that people just want to run past the crucifixion and all the darkness of that to get to Easter as soon as possible. But if you don't sort of sit with how broken things are, then the hope of the resurrection also ends up diminished. Yeah, one of the more uh, profound statements I found in the book is when you you wrote, we reduce prayer to a personal moment of our comfort or piety. God is our pious pick-me-up, a break from the big, band wor big bad world of work, politics, needs. Prayer is neither an escape or a way of magically filling in the small spaces where our own work fails. Um, one of the chapters that that I really settled into was lament. Um, I don't know if it's just because lament and 2020 seem to be great bedfellows. To, um, I know. I wrote <laughs> this book way before 2020. And then it's, it's just been weird. It's like, yeah, it's, it's been, I feel like the, the book is really timely in a way that was completely unpredictable to me when I wrote it. So I, I do think, man, the lament chapter's kind of on the nose right now, but I, I didn't mean it to be. I mean, I, I didn't expect it to be when I wrote it, but yeah. yeah. Well, one quote sticks out to me. It said, uh, it is better to come to God with sharp words than to remain distant from him, never voicing our doubts and disappointments. Better to rage at the creator than smolder in polite devotion. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about lament and why we need it as part of our spiritual journey. Yeah. So uh, uh, the scripture is full of lament. About 40% of the Psalms um, are lament. It's the most common form of Psalm. Um, and um, I talk in the book about lament being holding God to God's own promises. So lament for me is when I say like, Lord, <laughs> like you say that you are here to bring justice. You say that, um, that you come to set the captives free, but, but this, but this, it doesn't look the same. Like it, I'm not experiencing that right now. Like I see this place of injustice. I see this place of captivity. And so sort of railing at God about his own, his own promises. And I do think I have a um, friend, I hope she's okay with me bringing this up, but one of my very best friends, Andrea Palpunt Dilly is also a writer. And she wrote a book called Faith and Other Flat Tires um, about her own experience of, of leaving the faith and coming back. And um, she, she left in part because of these struggles with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering and how, how God could allow this. And one of the things that brought her back to faith is she realized um, you can't really be angry at God if you don't have a relationship with him. Like in other words, you can't deny theism 
you can't you can't be an atheist and hold God to a moral standard, right? Um, and so she felt like even her desire for justice, even her desire for things to be made right, um, is from a moral framework, right? Like she had this morality to judge God by um, that she'd received from God. Um, so I, I do think, I mean, just to be clear, whether you're an atheist or not, they're suffering in the world. I mean, I mean, that's that's a given. Like Christianity isn't what causes suffering. Christianity has caused suffering in the world. But I'm saying whether take Christianity out of the picture, there's still suffering in the world. The thing that Christianity brings that's unique is not a proclamation of suffering, but it's to say that that there is a God that judges all things that are not good and true and beautiful and ultimately destroys anything on earth and heaven, anything in nature, anything in, in the created order, anything in ourselves that are that is not um, part of his goodness, truth, and beauty. And so um, that, in other words, suffering is there, period. Um, the thing that I think we uniquely have is hope that it will be defeated, that it will be destroyed. But we live in this mean time where it's not. We live in this in this in between. And so, um, how do we endure that? How do we endure this? What I call in the book this mystery of suffering, mystery of theodicy. And one of the ways is lament, is to be honest with God about our sadness, our brokenness, um, our anger. I think um, just as my friend Andrea said that there is a sense that if you are struggling with God about the brokenness of the world, at least you're struggling with God, at least you're in relationship with God. Like, um, my husband and I learned very early in our marriage that um, if, you, if we get in a fight in the car um, we'll resolve it as long as we both stay in the car. <laughs> like, just no one can leave the car. You got to stay in it until we kind of can fight it out. And I just feel like there is a sense with lament where, like, if we are, if we're, if we're voicing our questions and confusion to God, we're staying in the car with God. You know, we're staying in that relationship and um, fighting things out um, with someone that we love and ultimately I think long to trust but are wrestling with how to trust um and there's there's more nuance in the book about that because I also think there's ways we can use lament that are that are um sort of self-focused or narcissistic or overly um self-righteous but I do think at the end of the day like lament is a spiritual practice it's a Christian practice and it's something I think we don't see enough of in the church that it, there can be a tendency that we have to, um, I, I mean, I just say in the book, if, if our, if all our church services show is just unimpeachable trust in God, we're actually being less honest than the scriptures are because in the Psalms in particular, but really in Ecclesiastes, like throughout the scripture, people are just wrestling with where where is God in the midst of darkness um, and many of the psalms of lament ultimately come to a place of trust not all psalm 88 sort of just ends in darkness but many come at the end but yet yet I will trust you we need to learn to lament I honestly don't think that we can um we can endure the mystery of because it's Christianity doesn't really give an answer. It doesn't give a tidy answer for suffering. It doesn't. It gives a story that we cling to. And the story is that God is going to set all things right, but things aren't right now. And so um, without the spiritual practice of lament, I don't know how we get through the Christian life without either lessening or denying suffering, trying to make suffering less bad. Um, or distancing ourselves from God. Like the only way that we can really, um, I think keep in this way of Jesus is um, to 
meet Jesus in suffering. And that's going to always involve lament. It's always going to involve how long, oh Lord, how long until you set things right? One other quote from the book I want to ask you about and see if you'll take us a little deeper here. Um, you wrote, prayer itself dares us to interact with the world beyond the material realm, a world filled with more mysteries than we can talk about in our Irvine uh, company. Um, take us a little deeper there. Yeah, so that was in the context of talking about the supernatural and the phrase um, in the prayer that says, give your angels charge over those who sleep. Um, so, um, I mean, prayer itself is, is an act against materialism, the idea that the only thing that exists is the things that we can know through our five senses. And so um, prayer is weird. Like it really, in, in, a, in a culture that um, is, may be increasingly materialistic. I'm not sure if that's true, but um, resistant maybe to spiritual things. It's, um, it's a weird thing to say that there is this reality outside of myself and there is a God I can know and I can speak to because of the resurrected Jesus. That's, that's countercultural in and of itself. Um, now, I think of course, there's like sort of trendy new age, like, like kind of new agey, new agey isn't in the right word, but just sort of like trendy um, spiritual things like mindfulness that may be akin to prayer. Um, and I'm not opposed to those. I think some of those have like um, more than just a grain of truth in them. Um, but I do think that, um, a lot of times those are cast as sort of connecting to our deeper self, to connecting to us, that there's still nothing really outside of us that we're connecting to. So the idea that there's a God that one can personally know and that you can talk to him <laughs> and that God can listen and respond or talk back or um, that you can listen to God, like th those are crazy, crazy ideas. And I don't, I don't even know if this is a true story, but I, I heard this, this is like one of those sermon illustrations that you don't know if it's actual fact. Um, and maybe someone knows, I'd love to know actually, cause I quote this a lot, but so if any of your listeners know, tell me, but there's a story that, um, I think it was, well, mother Teresa was interviewed by, um, Ted Koppel or something, one of these, these guys that used to be um, a journalist. And maybe it was Dan, rather. I don't know, but one of those dudes. And um, they said, when you pray, what do you say to God? And she said, I don't say anything. I just listen. And they very awkwardly sort of said, OK, <laughs> what does God say to you? And she says, he doesn't say anything, he just listens. Um, again, no idea if this is true. But the point is that it's um, when we're talking about prayer, we're talking about something that's profoundly countercultural and that we're, step we, we're proclaiming a reality outside of ourselves, that there's a God who is real and can be with us and can listen. But we're also, um, we're also, talking about something that's too big for us. Like we're, we're wearing, we're little kids that dressed in grown up clothing every time we pray, just in the sense that like, when I think of my kids playing dress up and it doesn't fit them and like, it's just, that's always gonna be prayer. It's this deep, deep mystery of, of, being, of talking to the creator of the universe. I mean, that's crazy of entering into this long conversation between the church and and you know the the bride of christ and and the groom and um and so i do think prayer is so unmanageable and it's um deeply mysterious and 
it's radically countercultural and it just always will be. What's your hope for your readers? Um, well, I have more than one hope, but um, so I really hope that my readers will um, be able to a few things. First of all, I guess ultimately be able to um, trust more deeply in the love of God because of this book, that they'd be able to trust God more and see the love of God, especially in darkness, kind of see light and darkness more. I mean, that's what this book has done for me is I just feel like, man, like my only hope um, in life and death is Jesus. And um, and I would have said that before, but I think it, I think in a greater way that I've just seen that, man, um, the world is a dark place. And um, we, if God is not going to set this right, like there really isn't much hope. Um, and so our hope, my, all my eggs are in that basket. Like my, <laughs> my hope is in Jesus in a, in a way that maybe it wasn't um, before. So I hope for that, but I also hope that some of these, the, how do we, I don't want that just to be kind of a intellectual exercise because that's easy to make that just like a, like a Sunday school pop quiz, right? We know the answer is Jesus. We know the answer is that we should love him, that he, we should trust his love for us. So I hope that the reader will be able to enter into some of these practices described in the book in a new way, things like lament, things like watching um, for God in beauty, things like, um, well, prayer and um, the work of prayer and, and learning to integrate prayer into our daily life and our daily work, um, but also meeting God in sickness and in our bodies and remembering our death. And I, every chapter has kind of a, a practice or a practical focus, and I hope that um, I hope the reader would be able to enter into some of these and there encounter um, God, the love of God. I, I, right now there's, um, because this is, we are recording this a, a month or so before the book is out. And so there's a launch team that's reading it together. Um, that was just whoever volunteered and wanted to be part of the launch team could join. And it's, um, I, I don't know if I should say this. I'm going to be really honest on your podcast, but I was a little hesitant to do a launch team because it felt kind of, um, I don't know. It felt like I was trying to form a fan club or something in a way that I wasn't comfortable with, but my, my publisher was like, no, 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 do the, do the launch team. So I, I listen, I do what my publisher tells me often. And so, um, but man, I would, it's just been such a personally just like beautiful experience for me to to read this with other people and see their response to it and a woman just wrote me that um her mother passed away uh yesterday and she said she felt like she didn't know she wanted to call out to god and didn't know how to pray um in the midst of this pain and so she um, just got online and listened to the morning prayer office and just sort of recited the words of these prayers. And she said it just drew her deeply into comfort and into the love of God in the midst of grief that she wasn't able to like gin up on her own. Like it was this practice outside of her. She stepped into not to prove there, there was nothing to prove, right? She's just, she's broken. She didn't have to do that, but she really wanted to encounter the love of God and, and needed, needed help, um, with that. And so, um, so she said that she did, she, she did that because of my book. So I hope that other folks, um, whether they're in deep suffering or just kind of ordinary, I mean, the book is a lot about ordinary suffering, just the regular old stuff that we deal with day in and day out, um, broken relationships and, um, stress and our jobs and um, struggles with, with um, our bodies and um, friendships and that sort of thing. But in all of that, that people could encounter the living God. That's my ultimate hope for the book. 
and that um, they could walk more deeply in the practices of the church that have been given to us for such a time as this. They've been given to us for moments of struggle and suffering, whether that's, you know, struggles in your marriage or really personal struggles or like a global pandemic. I mean, the church has been through this before um, and, and has handed down these prayers and practices so that we could walk in the way of Jesus in the midst of this. So ultimately, I guess my hope isn't that readers would encounter Jesus, um, but that they would also know more deeply how they can keep walking. I mean, the book was sort of, how do you trust God when you, when you don't know how to trust him? And how do you keep walking this way of Jesus when things seem really confusing and really dark and you don't have any answers? Um, like how do you fall on the truth when everything falls apart? So I hope that they'll be um, encouraged in those questions, basically. If you want to stay connected with Tish, check out her website, tishharrisonwarren.com. Of course, follow her on Twitter and purchase Prayer in the Night wherever books are sold on January the 26th. Uh, Tish, thank you for making time to have this conversation. And beyond this, thank you for inviting us into the deep mystery of conversation with God, even in the nighttime and darkness of our journey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.